All right. Once you've told those three things, go ahead and grab a seat. <laughs> Somebody said Duffy Sparks is just a liar. All three of his things were lies. Coy, Coy walked up to me a second ago. I don't know. If, stand up, Coy. Stand up real quick. Stand up. He said, I'm six foot two. I believe the two part. I don't know if I believe the six part. Uh, well, good job. Good job. Today, we're talking about lying. We're talking about love is truthful. We've been talking about love for uh, the last four or five weeks. It's found, this passage that we've been living in is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip with me there. But, you know, when we talk about love being truthful, uh, you know, obviously that brings up this idea of maybe not being truthful. I tell stories all the time about my kids because if I didn't have kids, I wouldn't have anything to preach about. But my kids, we got, we got a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, an almost five-year-old, four-and-a-half-year-old, I guess, and, and a, and a two-and-a-half-year-old. And, and, man, some of the things that they say, uh, it, it's like saying they're six-foot-two because, I mean, you just know it's not true, but they want you to believe it. And my dad has said since pretty much our first child was born, you know, when they would do something wrong, he would say, nobody taught them how to do that. Right? There's just this thing inside of us, this sin nature, if you want to go that far, or this just something that just kind of compels us to, to lie and to tell untruths and to, to say things or do things that we know are not right. And, and so today we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we're going to talk about being truthful. And, and, and have, have you ever told a lie? Anybody want to be honest and just say, yes, I've told a lie? If your hand is not up, you are a liar. So you're guilty as charged now. Uh, why do we lie? Have you ever thought about this? I mean, why do we lie? I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons. There's no way that I could, I could capture all of the reasons that we lie. But a couple things that I thought about, that we, the reasons that we lie, is we lie maybe because we're people pleasers and we're afraid of disappointing someone. We're afraid of letting them down. We're afraid of what they may think about us if they find out the truth or they hear the truth. And so we lie to kind of maybe get us beyond that moment where they're going to be disappointed or where we're not going to please them or where it's not going to play out the way we would hope. Maybe we lie because we feel trapped and we get into a situation where we we feel trapped. We, We don't know how to work our way out of this scenario that we find ourselves. And so we lie thinking that's the best way to get out of this situation that we find ourselves in. And then most often, if we're honest, the reason, the, 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 probably the, the most, uh, the, the number one reason that we lie is that we lie because we don't want to face the consequences of the action that we've actually already done. We get into a situation where we have to answer for what we've done. And so we lie to cover that up, to escape that moment, to get out of that moment, thinking that if we lie now, we don't have to face those consequences. Nobody will know the difference. Nobody's ever going to find out And so we lie and we convince ourselves that we can move beyond this moment without being truthful. If you have your Bibles, I want you to flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. If you don't have a Bible, you don't have a device of some kind that has maybe a Bible app on it, these will be on the screen for the most part throughout the time this morning. But I want us to read from 1 Corinthians 13. We've read this entire passage each week. And this is a passage that you're familiar with. We quote it at weddings. It's on coffee mugs. And we, you know, we post little memes and things on Facebook that have this, this scripture. But 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4 and reading down to verse 7, it says this. Love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 
It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Verse 6 is where we're going to land today. It says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. That little word in the middle there, that but word, is to help us see that the beginning of that sentence and the end of that sentence are connected. They are related, right? Uh, And so what we're looking at here is is a verse of Scripture that says, love does not, a negative connotation, it does not delight in evil, but, so conversely, it does rejoice positive connotation in the truth. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the opposite of truth is not a lie. The opposite of truth is evil. Think about that. What this passage tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love, if we truly love, if we are to understand the full connotation of love, the full context of love and what it means and all that it entails in this passage and in our human application, love does not delight in evil, anything evil. But it rejoices in the truth, which means that I have a response to the truth that is opposite of my response to evil. There is something about these two things that are connected. And so the opposite of truth is evil. And so today I want us to spend the majority of our time looking at evil, looking at and and maybe juxtaposing it, if I can use a two dollar word there, juxtaposing that with with the truth and with with good and so I want us to jump back, if you're, if you're with us in 1 Corinthians 13, if you've got a Bible or an app or something, jump with us back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. I want us to look at a story that many of us are familiar with, even if you are not somebody that spends a lot of time in church. Maybe you've never really spent much time reading the Bible. This is something that you've probably heard. You're familiar with this story somewhat. But we're going to jump back to the very first human beings on the earth, right? Adam and Eve. And we're going to look at a story that that most of us, again, are familiar with. This has been kind of pulled into culture, even outside of things of faith. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3 and look at evil and look at some things about uh, the reality of truth. So Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. This is what it says. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman... Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now stop right here and understand that truth will always be questioned. Always. You don't have to look very far. You don't have to really kind of, you know, try to do a lot of research on this. You just understand that the things that you hold to be true will be questioned. I can can go to just the example of my kids. If I said to one of my children right now who will remain nameless, but his name is Branson. If I were to say to Branson, the sky is blue. He would probably have a conversation with me about how it's not exactly blue because of the clouds. And there's some things that maybe make it a different shade of of something else. My son Cooper would not have a conversation. He would just tell me I'm outright wrong, right? But Branson would have questions about that, and he would wonder how we know it's blue, and what do we, how do we know what the color blue is? And so truth will always be questioned. You take it outside of the context of a child, and you just look at our culture, and you look at the things that you and I hold to be true, and the way that those things are questioned. If you find your, your values in Scripture, if you find your values around things of faith and things of God, then you don't have to go very far in life to realize that those things are going to be questioned, Right? 
We get to a certain age where no matter what faith we have inside of us, we get into a, a school, a middle school, or even high school or, or college, and, and to some varying degree, and that maybe even into elementary school all the way down, but some varying degree, those things will be questioned. And questions by themselves are not bad, right? Questions allow us, those that are on this pursuit to live lives centered around based on the truth of God's word, questions really allow us to, to kind of fortify what we believe, Right? I remember when I was growing up, my mom and dad, they would be, I felt like, a, a little kind of put off by my questions. Not, not really. They wanted me to ask questions. But sometimes if I asked hard faith questions and they didn't know, and now as a parent I get this, they would be afraid to answer for fear of, like, steering me in the wrong direction. And so my mom would say, talk to your dad. And then my dad would say, why don't we call your grandparents? You know, so there was this idea that if I was questioning something, maybe I didn't believe it. When in reality, questions can allow us to fortify or further believe what we actually believed in the first place. But when the enemy is involved, that truth being questioned is is to pull us off of our game, to pull us away from the things that we think we believe. Because in our culture today, I mean, the idea of truth in general is something that's being fought at from every angle. I remember people talking about this idea that there was no absolute truth. I think, I think for the most part we've moved beyond that argument because people that would say there is no absolute truth had a self-defeating argument because they were making an absolute statement that there was no absolute truth and it was dumb. So they've quit doing that. And so now it's not the idea that there's no absolute truth. It is the idea that I can have truth and you can have truth and those things do not have to be mutually exclusive. That I can believe something is true, you can believe something is true, they can be the exact opposite things and they can both still be true. The idea being that you find your truth and I'll find my truth and there's this universal idea of truth. When I believe, I put my hope in the truth of God's word, the the foundation of the timeless word of God and the, the words of Jesus Christ, the nature of God himself and I believe that there are things that are absolute, that, that there are things that I believe to be truth. And there may be things that you wholeheartedly fully believe is truth, but it it may not be according to the foundational things that I put my hope and trust in. And so this idea that truth will be questioned, I mean, it said right up front that the snake was the shrewdest of the animals that God had created. And he begins questioning what God actually said. He begins to plant doubt in the woman's mind of, did you really hear what you think you heard? Did God really say what you think he said? You ever had something that you believed with all of your heart? And someone starts asking questions and there's doubt now that kind of gets inside that. And your your mind starts playing tricks on you. And the things that you held to and that you thought were true, now you're like, well, maybe it's not. And I'm not really sure why. And and, and here's what I would encourage you to do. And I'll just say this right up front. I I don't try to put on me or anybody else that ever stands on this stage any more authority or influence than we have. But I know how I did when I was growing up and I was involved in just attending church. There would be things that a preacher or a pastor would say, and I would take it as the truth without doing any personal research, without opening God's word and determining if I actually believed that to be true on my own. I would just say, well, he said it. It's got to be true. And then when people questioned me about those things, I had no basis to stand on. I said, well, my, my pastor said that one time, right? Instead of being able to quote chapter and verse, instead of being able to go to God's word or to go to personal experience and say, well, I believe it because I know God said it to me. I believe it because it's in the Bible in this place. Instead of being able to do that because I didn't have any personal application, I was basing it off something that I'd heard from someone else. 
And let me just tell you that that kind of truth, though it may be completely true, is hard to defend. Why? Because even in a court of law, that's hearsay. It's inadmissible. And so even if you hear from me or anybody else that's ever proclaiming truth, I would encourage you to find out that truth for yourself, to to find evidence that supports that or negates it, and to, to find ways to really apply that in your own life so that you can understand how to stand up against the questions that may come. My wife and I were talking to our oldest son, Cooper, this week, and we were talking about this idea of sin. And we referenced the scripture in God's word that says, how, how can I keep from sinning? Right? Hide God's word in my heart. So I want to encourage you and to encourage me to pursue truth on our own and not just in environments like this with our ears. Let's keep reading in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 3. Of course... This is the woman's reply. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. And if you do, you will die. Truth provides a framework for life. You ever thought about this? I mean, I'm a sports guy. So the foul lines in a baseball game on a baseball field say that the action of the game, for the most part, takes place inside the lines a football field or a basketball court, there is an out-of-bound indicator line all the way around to say that the action of the game exists inside of these lines, inbounds. You get in your car and you drive, and there's, there's lines to indicate that you stay within your lane to make sure that you can properly live and safely get from point A to point B. Sometimes they put up guardrails to ensure that you stay away from danger and you stay in a place of safety. And that's what truth does in our lives, right? What did, what did the woman say here to the snake in response to him questioning the truth? She said, no, God said we could eat of the, truth, of the fruit of the trees. He only said that we could not eat or even touch the fruit of one tree. She was helping to remember and then retell the truth that she had been given. That there is a framework. There is an out-of-bounds line here. And the thing that a lot of people struggle with as it relates to Christianity or things of faith is that there are some don'ts, right? We love the do's. Do this, do that. But the idea that anyone, including some type of ancient text or some type of faith gathering, would say there are some things that we don't do. There are some out-of-bounds lines. Is something that a lot of us bristle at. Because we like to be in control. We like to be the one that decides what we do and what we don't do. And the fact that we would hear that from someone else or be told that by someone else is something that we are uncomfortable with. But there are definitely some don'ts, right? There are some thou shalt nots in Scripture. And it's not to keep us away from things that we might enjoy. That, that's, actually, that's actually not true. It's to keep us in the limits of safety. It's to keep us within the confines and the boundaries of safe living to ensure that even if there's something we enjoy, even if it's something that we might want to do, that if we stay within the guidelines, we stay within the framework, we stay in bounds in the way that we're living, it keeps us away from harm or danger. And again, some of us struggle with this idea, but she was giving to the serpent here the framework for how they were supposed to live in the garden. And, and the reality is, and we know this, the reality is if we jump ahead in the story, we know that they eat of the fruit of the tree they're not supposed to, right? They chose to eat of the one thing they couldn't have and to ignore all of the things that they could have. 
And most of us, myself included, when we find ourselves in trouble, when we find ourselves in some type of sin, trap, issue, addictive lifestyle or relationship or whatever, what, we, what we've actually done is we have ignored all of the pleasures that God has granted to us and focused our attention on the one forbidden fruit. Sin is a matter of focus. Where do I turn my attention? Let's keep reading in verse 4. She had just said, if you do this, you will die. He responds in verse 4 to say, you won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Not only will truth be questioned, and not only does truth provide this framework for life, truth will be changed. And I say that in air quotes, okay? Because it's not, when we believe absolute truth, we're not saying it actually changes it, but we say that the voices outside will attempt to change what we believe about truth. This kind of goes hand in hand with questions, but it is the idea that someone's going to come along and tell you that what you heard or what you believe is wrong, and here's why you shouldn't believe that. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. He just knows that this other outcome is going to happen. He just knows that there's this other thing that's actually going to happen in your life. And so you're not going to, what you heard, what you thought, man, that's really sweet that you would believe something like that and that you would actually take him at his word. But that's not actually the truth. And so truth will be changed. This shrewd enemy that she is conversing with is now trying to convince her that he is more believable than the God that first spoke life into her. Let's continue reading in verse 6. The woman was convinced. I think we're all guilty of that. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. And if you have a pen or a pencil, I encourage you to underline that sentence in your Bible. If you have an app, I encourage you to highlight it and tag it and make a note and bookmark it and email it to yourself and print it. And This verse in Genesis 3 verse 6 is... Our justification for sin. Almost 100% of the time. I, I can't think of a scenario where it's not, but I'll just say almost. Okay? The woman was convinced. She was convinced that what she had believed before was not the whole truth. And then she focused her attention on the things she knew she was not supposed to focus her attention on. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. She's standing in front of a tree at some distance. Maybe she's not right up next to it yet. And focusing her attention not on all of the other trees and all of the other fruit in the garden, but on the one tree and the one fruit. And she becomes convinced that what she thought was true is not true anymore. And that this thing that is forbidden is beautiful and it looks delicious. And she wants it. Since the tree was beautiful, the fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give to her. You can pray a thousand prayers. You can come down to altars every time we open an altar in a setting like this and pray and cry, and it's not on this carpet. You can sing every worship song we ever sing in this room. You can listen to every sermon. You can take notes. You can tithe. You can be in a life group. You can serve on a team. You can go on a missions trip. But ultimately, 
when you're standing in front of a tree that you know is forbidden? It's up to you. God's not going to stop you. We see from this story and hundreds of others between Genesis and Revelation that God has given to man a free will, free choice, to decide which way or the other they want to live. He made us in his image to worship him and to be in communion and community with him. But he did not intervene in that moment when that woman looked at the tree and said, it's beautiful and it looks delicious and I want it. He let her have it. You know what she needed in that moment that you and I need every single time we find ourselves in a similar moment? Self-discipline. Self-discipline. Self-discipline might be defined this way. Choosing what I want most over what I want now. Choosing what I want most over what I want now. Saying, I, I want to maintain the community, the relationship, the, the relationship with God that's built on the fact that he knows best for me. That he's telling me the truth. That he's given me an entire garden. That's what I want most. Right now, I want that fruit on that forbidden tree. And the wisdom that comes with it. But I'm going to lean into what I want most over what I want now. It's why we live by budgets, right? Because we want to save money so that one day down the road we can have what we want most. Financial security or the ability to invest in our kids or the future generations or to go on vacations and trips that we can't do now. So we budget and we save money now because we don't want to just have these momentary fleeting things now. We want to invest in the long term what we want most. It's what's required to maintain purity and faithfulness in marriages. To say that I want to stand with my wife in celebration of 75 years of faithful marriage. Rather than to take part in this momentary forbidden fruit. You can take it to any degree of sin. Any specific activity both small and large. And you can say I got to have self-discipline. I'm going to choose what I want most. Instead of what I want now. And I'm not saying that it's all dependent on you. I'm not saying that none of this depends on the grace of God. Or the strength of God. Or the wisdom of God. I believe that it does. How can I keep from sinning? By hiding God's word in my heart. I believe that discipline is just like any other muscle. I got to work it out. I got to strengthen it. I've got to encourage myself in the Lord. I've got, to, I've got to have the scriptures in my heart. I've got to know God's word. I've got to lean into moments that I have experienced the truth and the power and the presence of God. So when those moments come and I'm standing there and I don't know how to get out, he's been convincing. They, they've made a lot of good arguments. They've asked a lot of good questions. It seems like it's not that far over the line that is the framework for life. In that moment, I can lean into what I know. But ultimately, it's on me. Choosing what I want most over what I want now. Let's continue reading. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And let me just pause to say that misery loves company. And that the guilty love someone to share in their guilt. 
And if somebody in your life is doing something that you know is wrong and they ask you to be a part of it, say no. Say no. Don't get in there so they feel better about themselves, right? So she gave some to her husband and he ate it too. Verse 7, at that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Underline the word shame if you've already started writing in your Bibles. Suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They felt shame. They recognized their condition of nakedness. Here's, here's what we know. We know that they walked in the cool of the day with God prior to this. That they had this incredible ability to just spend time with God. And guess what? According to this scripture, if we just kind of superimpose that on the text pre- previously, they were naked then too. But they didn't know it. They weren't aware of their condition until their eyes were opened and they felt shame. Shame invades intimacy. Shame, it, it destroys intimacy. And there's a difference in shame and guilt, right? Those are two different things. We kind of, we put those beside each other and we think they're the same thing. But guilt says, I did something bad. I feel guilty for it. I did something bad. Shame is, I am something bad, right? We change our identity. We don't say, look what I did back there. I feel guilty for what I did back there. We say, look at me. I am shameful. I am somebody else. My identity is something else. My condition is something that isn't right, And yet they had spent time with God previously. They'd walked in the cool of the day with God previously completely naked, right? And we blush at that and we think that's funny because of the sexualization of our culture today. But this idea that there was nothing inhibiting them in their relationship with God. There was nothing that stood between them and just full transparency and authenticity and just being genuine with God and just being open and honest before him and just walking with God. There was nothing about that that they should feel shameful about. And yet, when they ate of the fruit of the tree that they had been told not to eat from, they felt shame. They felt shame. And they changed their condition. They tried on their own to to sow fig leaves, right? And to put them together to cover themselves. And this is what we do. We do something, we feel shameful, and we cover it up, right? We cover up the moment that we think changed our condition, when really that was a moment. It was a guilty moment, but it doesn't change our condition. It just, it requires us to go back and engage the Father. We've got to find a way to maintain the intimacy. We cannot allow that moment to change our identity, But shame invades intimacy and we begin to cover it up. And then this crazy thing happens. We're all guilty of this in some varying degree, I'm sure. This crazy thing happens. We go from covering up the shameful incident, the moment, the thing, and we start covering up little stuff that doesn't even matter. Because now we just are in the habit of covering it up. Now we have this customary interaction with whoever it is that we've been intimate with, with God or with others, our spouse or family or friends or coworkers, whoever it is that we've had this, this great, open and honest relationship. And then we start covering up little stuff that has nothing to do with this shameful event, right? And now there's a complete breakdown in the relationship. A complete breakdown. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, 
says that there is now no condemnation. It's the same kind of root word that we get shame from. It's not the exact same word, but a similar idea. There's now no condemnation, no shame. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. The idea of being in Christ Jesus says that I derive, I get, I gain my identity from him. I'm not Jeremy. I am a son. I am a child of God. I am co-heirs, scripture talks about. I'm a brother with Jesus Christ in relationship with Father God. I find identity there. And in that identity, I feel no shame or condemnation. But for most of us, we change our identity. We change our condition to try to cover up a moment of guilt. Let's continue reading in verse 8. We're almost done. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. Which, let me just pause right there and say, that's amazing. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Incredibly, incredibly sad. They hid from their maker. As if they could hide from him. And I would make fun of them, but I've done it. I've tried to hide things from a God who knows everything. Right? They heard him walking around. And so they hid among the trees. The trees he created. Right? Hilarious to me. The default reaction to sin is hiding. The default reaction to sin is hiding. Hiding the sin hiding other issues, hiding the things that got us into the sin, hiding ourselves from those that we love. Verse 9. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, and so I hid, and I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? God knew immediately, right? He didn't just know now, he knew then, but he, he asked this great driving, kind of biting question here. Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? God knew that that's the only way they would be aware of their condition. The man replied, it was the woman that you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. I'm just going to pause and say, I don't think he answered the question. And the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. You see what happened right there? The man blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. Nobody, nobody said, yeah, this is my fault. I did this. I mean, my kids do this all the time. We asked them to clean their room the other day. They had some friends over who were spending the night, and their friends left. Now, keep in mind, they had all been in that room. I said, hey, go up, just pick up the stuff, you know, just the dirty clothes, drop them in the dirty clothes, all the toys you guys were playing with, put them back in the toy bin, and, you know, the things that are on the floor, just make sure you get those up off the floor. And, and, and my oldest son said, I didn't do any of it. Really? You were just levitating in the room while your friends were there, not touching any toy or any, just, just observing from a distance, right? God says to the man, did you eat the fruit of the tree that I commanded you not to? She made me do it. And so God just kind of lets that one slide. I wish God would have just said, no, you didn't answer. Let's, let's go back, Adam. But he, he comes to Eve and he just lets that slide and just moves over and said, well, did, did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to? And she said, the, 
serpent made me do it. And yeah. It's the default reaction. Hide and deflect. Hide and point people's attention somewhere else. Hide and place the blame. Hide and say, it's someone else's fault that I did this. It's this blame game, right? Yes, I was the one that did the action. I was the one that messed up. I was the one that... But it was, it was their fault. It was that's fault. It, they did... No. Just own up and say, I did it. I did it. You're right. Let's jump all the way down to verse 23. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. And he sent Adam to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. What we skipped in verses 14 through 22 is that God then declares judgment on the serpent and on the man and on the woman. He tells the serpent that he'll always be subjected to the man. He tells the man that he'll have to toil in the ground. He tells the woman that she'll have pain and childbearing and all these things. He, he, he declares some judgment based on the things that they had done. And so he confronts the issue of the sin and the deception that existed there. And so he declared that. And let me just say really quickly that your dishonesty will affect more than just you. Your deception is not just confined to you, right? Because God banished them from the Garden of Eden. I don't know how the story would have played out thousands of years later and if everybody would have continued to live in the Garden of Eden, but Cain and Abel didn't. Their children were affected by their dishonesty and deception. I stood with a guy one time who was admitting an affair. And he was so deceived in his own mind that when I asked a question about his children, he just brushed it off. He said, oh, they'll be fine. We'll work really hard, their mother and I, will work really hard to make sure that this doesn't affect them. Guess what? It has. Your deception and the judgment that is required affects more than just you. And that's a really great tool of the enemy to make you think that nobody's ever going to know. But if they did, it'll just be on you and you can kind of live with that and you'll weather the storm. The ramifications, the ripple effect of that. You have no idea. I have no idea. And so God banishes them from the Garden of Eden. There were earthly consequences for their actions. I mean, here's the thing. Like, if you do something wrong, you you commit a terrible, heinous crime, right? You can ask God to forgive you, and he will 100% of the time. But there are some earthly consequences to your actions. You go out and kill a guy... You can plead the blood of Jesus Christ and the eternal ramifications taken care of right then. But you're going to go to jail. I mean, there's no magic genie formula that says when I ask God for forgiveness, all of the earthly consequences for my poor decisions go away. King David's a great example of this. He had an affair with Bathsheba. He kills her husband to try to cover it up, but she ends up pregnant. 
And then he's confronted by the prophet. And after being confronted by the prophet and blaming someone and saying it wasn't him and actually kind of getting vehemently angry and saying, who, who is this man that did this terrible thing? I will, I will destroy him. I'll, I'll make it right. And the prophet points his finger in David's face and said, it's you. You're the rich man who stole the one lamb from the poor guy. Fascinating read between Nathan the prophet and King David. And King David says, you're right. I'm so sorry. I beg of God's forgiveness. And guess what? In that moment, God forgave him. But a couple of days later, that baby died. There are earthly consequences related to deception. And I ran across this quote, and this is how I'd like to just kind of close this moment here. I thought this was pretty, pretty telling. The fear of consequences cause us to do things that get us in more trouble than just being honest now. The fear of consequences causes us to do things that get us in more trouble than if we were just honest now. Corey says to me on a lot of occasions, he says, listen, you always be honest with me. If I get mad, I'll get mad. We'll work through it. But don't hide something from me so that I don't get mad. It's going to be way worse in the long run. We try to live open and honest lives with one another. Transparent. That says, listen, I love you. If, if love delights in the truth, I love you enough to tell you the truth, even when it's not delightful. Because guess what? Love tells the truth. All the time. Love tells the truth. Love delights in the truth even when the truth isn't delightful. It's just the reality. And so here's how we want to close this time. In just a moment, we're going to take communion. We're going to respond by reenacting and remembering what Jesus Christ did with his closest followers. But before we get there, I want you and I just to make sure that there's nothing in our hearts, nothing in our lives that isn't truthful. Here's what scripture tells us. Jesus actually said this himself. It's in John chapter 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you take the components of the first part of that verse and you just kind of separate them out, Jesus said, I am the way. And Jesus said, I am the truth. And he said, I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me, he said. And so here's the reality for all of us in this room. Jesus is the way, period. There's not a period in that verse, but the reality of that is that if he's the way, you can put a period right there. He's the way to the Father. The end part says Jesus is the life, period. There's not a period right there, but the reality, the truth of that is that, that he, if he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying, I am the life. You want to live? You want to fully live? Live in me. Live in me. I am life. And then the middle part said, the way, the truth, and the life. 
Jesus is truth. And so here, here's a personal thing for me, right? And for you. I got to search my heart today and say, am I truthful? Not do I tell the truth when it kind of makes sense. I mean, why do we lie? Because we are deceived. Sometimes by outside forces. Sometimes it's the enemy. Sometimes it's the serpent. Sometimes it's somebody else. Sometimes it's another voice. Sometimes the really beautiful, desirable tree starts talking to us and saying, yeah, I'm everything you think I am. But I told you right up front, I think kind of some common reasons that we lie is that we feel trapped. That is not truth. That is evil. We think that there's no way out, but Jesus said, I am the way, right? We're not trapped. First Corinthians 10, 13 says, there's no temptation that seizes you, that comes against you, except that which is common to man, which means your temptation may not be the same temptation as the person sitting beside you, but somebody else in the room is facing what you're facing. And the enemy would love to get you alone and make you think that nobody, nobody knows what you're going through and nobody can relate. And if you say anything, they're going to think you're crazy. But that verse goes on in 1 Corinthians 10 to say that God is faithful and he will provide a way out. There's never, ever, 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 ever a place where you are trapped. There's a way out. The way out may have been back there. So just back up and go out. It may be right there. It may be through a hard conversation. It may be through something you don't want to walk through, but you are not trapped. Another reason that we we lie is we're people pleasers. We don't want to disappoint. We don't want to let people down. The deception there is that we find our identity in others. When we just said, according to Romans 8, chapter 1, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My identity is not found in these other people I want to please. It's found in him. So I should never have to lie to please people. I should just be truthful because it honors my identity as a child of Christ, a child of God. That's where I find my identity. And then we lie because we we think no one will find out. And we don't want to deal with the consequences now. And let me just assure you that it will be found out. Adam and Eve ate a fruit. God came looking. David did the unthinkable with a man's wife and killed that man. And the prophet shows up and tells him a story that reveals his sin. Moses killed an Egyptian. The Bible actually says, it actually says, if you read it in, in early part of Exodus, it says that he looked around and no one was there and he killed the Egyptian. And the next day, a guy walked up to him and says, what, are you going to kill me like you killed the guy yesterday? My mom always said this, be careful, your sins will find you out. You don't want to deal with the consequences? Listen, earthly consequences will happen. They have to. You worry about eternity. You worry about the one who you find identity in. Get right with him and let the chips fall and just do it right. Just be truthful and honest and live as upright before God as you can. We lie because we have been deceived. And most often we are deceived by ourselves. And so I want you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment before we take communion, before we reenact and remember 
the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I want us all to ask this question. Am I truthful? God, do I lie because I feel trapped? Do I lie because I I don't think anybody's ever going to find out? Do I lie because I'm a people pleaser and I find my identity in others? Do I lie because I don't, I fear the consequences? Am I truthful? And if the answer is even remotely no, then here's what I would say to you. What we sang earlier about how he loves, you may not fully believe that in your heart. Because if you knew that God loved you, it's a game changer. It's not a magic formula, but it is a game changer because it sets the foundation for the way that we live. And so right now, you're just searching your heart. You're just asking yourself, am I truthful? You're asking God, am I truthful? Search my heart, God. See if there's any wicked way in me. Am I truthful? And I just want to pray for you and over you and ask God to help us to be truthful. But before I do, with nobody looking around, every head bowed, every eye closed, if you would say to me today, Jeremy, I know I'm not truthful. I don't try to be a bad person, or maybe I know I'm a bad person, but I I, I know I'm not truthful. And today I'm asking God to help me to be truthful. Maybe it's some sin issues. Maybe I've made bad mistakes. I've got guilty moments. I've, I've kind of put shame on me, but I know I'm not truthful. And today I want to make that right. Would you just lift your hands? Put it up. You can put it right back down. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Anybody else? I know that's a hard one. And you got people you love sitting beside you and you're afraid that if you lift your hand, they're going to ask you later, why'd you lift your hand? What are you not being truthful about? We're going to pray for that right now. God, I pray for every person in this room. I pray for every person that's listening to this podcast at some point in the future. That God, the words that are being spoken today, the words that are being prayed today, God, I, I don't believe these are my words. I believe you've laid this on my heart. God, all week long, there's a heaviness that's been there because I believe this is something that we're, we're fighting against. God, there is a, there's an untruthfulness. God, would you help us to know that you love us? every hand that was raised and those that didn't raise their hand, but God, their heart was leaping out of their chest because they know that there are hidden things going on in their life. I pray right now, God, for freedom from those things. I pray, God, for deliverance from sinful lifestyle choices and addictions and relationships and poor decisions. God, I pray now for a forgiveness as they seek it from you. I pray for every person that's put shame on themselves and tried to cover their guilty moments with a sense of shame to change their identity, recognize their condition. God, would they find identity in you? God, we thank you that we have that ability. And today I pray for every person in this room that with a new acknowledgement of your love, that they would live in the freedom of that love, that it is not conditional based on their performance. God, they would love you because you first loved them. In Jesus' name I pray.